Good morning, friends, and welcome to this morning's podcast. I'm Pastor Bird at St. David Church of the Nazarene. Today we're still in chapter 1 of the book of Mark, and we're going to be discussing verses 14 and 15. So really, this is the fourth sermon on the book of Mark and the third podcast. I told you before that Mark goes straight to the point of action, and we usually have to go to the other Gospels to fill in a lot of the blanks. Let's read chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. And while you're turning there, I just want you to know that even though you're not here with us this morning, you are loved, you are missed, and we pray for you whenever we meet. And even if you don't go to our church, you need to know that God loves you. He sacrificed his son on the cross so that no matter what you've done, no matter how offensive you think you are to God, you are not beyond the reach of his loving arms. These messages are for you also. Starting with verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Thank you, Jesus. Now, so far, we have established the identity of Jesus. We have defined what it is to repent. And we last read that when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist, he, Jesus, was immediately driven into the desert to be tried and tested. And the next thing we know, John the Baptist has been arrested and thrown into prison, basically the dungeon. Now we gather from later chapters in Mark and Matthew that Herod Antipas, ruler of Galilee under the Roman Empire, had imprisoned John the Baptist because he had publicly reprimanded and condemned Herod for divorcing his first wife and unlawfully taking the divorced wife of his half-brother, Herod Philip, which violated the Mosaic law. You might wonder what business John the Baptist had in condemning Herod of his decadent lifestyle. But interestingly enough, Herod Antipas was raised as a Jew and publicly identified himself as such, and was considered as such by many Jews. Of course, this religious identification was undermined by him and his family's immoral lifestyle, which would have earned them the animosity of observant Jews. Nevertheless, Herod was afraid to have the popular prophet killed. Being a Jew himself, you can kind of see why he might be afraid of killing John the Baptist. If you remember, even the Roman soldiers came to John the Baptist to be baptized. Well, apparently Herod had a thing, let's just call it lust for what it is, for Herodias's daughter, Salome. After Salome, his newly acquired stepdaughter, danced before Herod and his guests at a festival, he got worked up enough to promise to give her anything she wanted up to half his kingdom. This alone should give you an idea of the ancestral lust that seemed to plague this ruler. 
And Salome's mother doesn't seem to be any healthier morally since she is quick to take advantage of her husband's lustful weaknesses. Now, prompted by her mother, Herodias, who was infuriated by John the Baptist's condemnation of her marriage, the girl demanded the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the unwilling Herod was forced by his oath to have John beheaded. Salome took the platter with John's head and gave it to her mother. You can't make this stuff up, folks. This beats any horror script you're going to find on the bestseller list. But, of course, the Bible has been the number one bestseller forever. His unwillingness to kill John the Baptist reminds me of another event that happened a couple years later when another unwilling ruler gave in to the whims of an evil crowd when he ordered Jesus to be crucified and made a symbolic showing of his unwillingness by washing his hands. Of course, I'm speaking of Pontius Pilate. I think much goes on the same in politics today. Members of both parties unwillingly submit to voting along party lines to keep from being ostracized or suffer some punitive measure of retribution. They eventually have to get creative about how to justify some of the decisions they make. I don't think that all the members of any one political party are immoral or driven by evil motives. I'm sure that many members of Congress just didn't realize how weak and lacking in integrity and character they were until they began what they thought was serving their constituents. They didn't realize how powerful their mentors were that had made a career of catering to lobbyists and padding their own bank accounts. But the records show that 100% vote along party lines from each party on almost every issue. That's just not what is supposed to happen when each individual does their own research and analysis and determines from their own clean conscience how they will vote. It just doesn't happen. And America sees that. There's no compromise. Everybody in each political party votes the same as everybody else in their party, whether they believe it's right or not, much like Herod and Tipas or Pontius Pilate. Now, your perspective on the state of our nation is probably colored by whether you consider yourself a right-wing or left-wing, conservative or liberal, Republican or Democrat. Maybe you're an independent, perhaps you're a Christian, and somehow that determines your political affiliation. Perhaps you don't weigh the facts, and as far as you're concerned, every decision the party of your choice makes, you support it 100%. This nation is pretty much equally divided at the polls every year. And this may come as a shock to you, but regardless of who's elected this November, this nation will still pretty much be equally divided. Don't get me wrong, I'm not judging you. We just can't see where the others are coming from. If you go on one of those social media platforms, whether it's Instagram or TikTok or who knows, I'm limited by my ignorance of all the available platforms, you'll see that the supporters for each of their preferred presidential candidates view the other as the Antichrist, the most evil person since the flood. There's no in-between. 
Over 2,000 years ago, Jesus announced that the kingdom of God was at hand. He also said that a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. What did Jesus mean when he said that the kingdom of heaven was at hand or had come near? Was Jesus talking about politics? I personally feel that that statement could be applied to the United States. The Civil War showed that America was indeed in danger of falling if something wasn't done to reunite the country. And I fear that we may be on the verge of something similar again. However, Jesus was not referring to a political division in Israel. He was, of course, answering his accusers when they accused him of doing miracles by the power of Satan. Interestingly enough, there's no documentary evidence that Jesus ever spoke ill of or condemned the actions of the tyrannical Roman government. He did, of course, have a lot to say about social injustice, compassion, and love. So what is the kingdom of God? Well, obviously, a kingdom is the king's domain. The word itself is made up of the words king and domain. But what did he mean by the kingdom of God is come near or the kingdom of God is at hand? Well, the first thing I want you to know is that the statement had nothing to do with politics in the world. Politics is simply the activities associated with the governance of a country or other area. When we think of politics, our mind naturally goes to that of the president, a prime minister, or king, and their associated cabinet members. Jesus was telling them that the king was in their midst. He was the king that the prophets had foretold. His kingdom was composed of people that belonged to him, people that he called his own, people that would worship him as king. Since we understand that God is the creator of all things, the extent of his realm must be the whole world. Manifestly, then, in the kingdom of God is wherever God reigns. And since he reigns everywhere, the kingdom of God is everywhere. Well, here's the question. If the kingdom of God consists of all the universe over which God reigns, why would anyone announce that the kingdom of God was near or about to come to pass? Obviously, John the Baptist and Jesus meant something more about this concept of the kingdom of God. At the heart of this theme is the idea of God's messianic kingdom. It is a kingdom that will be ruled by God's appointed Messiah, who will be not just the redeemer of his people, but their king. So when Mark or John speaks of the radical nearness of this breakthrough, the intrusion of the kingdom of God, he's speaking of this kingdom of the Messiah. At the end of Jesus's life, just as he was about to depart from the earth, his disciples had the opportunity to ask him one last question. They asked, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? I can easily imagine that Jesus might have been somewhat frustrated by this question. I would have expected him to say, how many times do I have to tell you I'm not going to restore the kingdom to Israel? But that's not what he said. He gave a patient and gentle answer. He said, it's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. 
but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What did he mean? What was he getting at? When Jesus told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world, was he indicating that his kingdom was something spiritual that takes place in our hearts, or was he speaking of something else? The whole Old Testament called attention not to a kingdom that would simply appear in people's heart, but to a kingdom that would break through into this world, a kingdom that would be ruled by God's appointed, anointed Messiah. For this reason, during his earthly ministry, Jesus made comments such as, if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Similarly, when Jesus sent out 70 disciples on a preaching mission, he instructed them to tell in penitent cities that the kingdom of God has come near you. How could the kingdom be upon the people or near them? The kingdom of God was near to them because the king of the kingdom was there. When he came, Jesus inaugurated God's kingdom. He didn't consummate it, but he started it. And when he ascended into heaven, he went there for his coronation, for his formal appointment as the king of kings and lord of lords. So Jesus' kingship is not something that remains in the future. Christ is king right this minute. He is in the seat of the highest cosmic authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to God's anointed son. The kingdom of God is wherever God reigns, and since he reigns everywhere, the kingdom of God is everywhere. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our real Christian, a real Christian understands something about the kingdom of God that our first place of citizenship is in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God trumps every earthly kingdom. I'm a Christian first and American second. I owe allegiance to the American flag, but I have a higher allegiance to Christ because he's my king. We experience this conflict of kingdoms when Jesus tells us to pray, your kingdom come. What does this mean? What are we praying for when we speak this petition? There's a logic that runs like a ribbon through the Lord's Prayer. Each of the petitions is connected to the others. The first petition Jesus taught us was, Hallowed be your name, which is a plea that the name of God would be regarded as holy. Obviously, unless and until the name of God is regarded as holy, his kingdom will not and cannot come to this world. But we who do regard his name as holy then have the responsibility to make the kingdom of God manifest, to make it obvious, to reveal the truth of it, the reality of it. John Calvin said it's the task of the church to make the invisible kingdom visible. We do that by living in such a way that we bear witness to the reality of the kingship of Christ in our jobs, our families, our schools, and even our checkbooks. Because God in Christ is king over every one of these spheres of life. The only way the kingdom of God is going to be manifest in this world before Christ comes 
is if we manifest it by the way we live as citizens of heaven and subjects of the king. If we live as citizens of heaven and subjects of the king, can we make a difference on this earth? Can we make a difference in our country, in our communities? Of course we can. And naturally, this brings up the question all Christians have or should have at some point in their life, should I vote? I remember one election in which Billy Graham urged every Christian, go to the polls and vote your biblical conscience. I remember that day like it was yesterday. I don't know that it made any difference, but I do think that God honors our decision at the polls if we truly vote based on our biblical knowledge, regardless of the candidate we vote for. I think the polls were pretty much equally divided at that time. I truly believe that if we prayerfully consider who is best to run our country, we should vote for the one we think would be best for the country, even if it is the lesser of two evils. Now, of course, this is my opinion, and this, take it with a grain of salt, uh, the Bible gives us no specific instructions on voting. Even if it's not the choice I would make, because maybe it's through our voting that God's will is carried out. In any case, I'm very fond of the quote, the only thing necessary for evil to triumph in the world is that good men do nothing. Supposedly, it's a quote by Edmund Burke, but some say it's not. In any case, I believe it to be true that the only thing necessary for evil to triumph in the world is that good men do nothing. And the reason I believe that is because evil men everywhere are doing everything they can to make evil triumph in the world. And you can quote Pastor Bird on that one. I will vote my biblical conscience at the polls, but so much more importantly, it is when we live out our biblical conscience every day that we make the most impact for the kingdom of God. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for all that hear this message. God, those of us that have believed and entrusted our lives to you, pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, we pray that you will help us to live as citizens of heaven and subjects of the king. I pray, Father, that everyone who receives this message that does not know you as Lord and Savior will repent and become a citizen of the kingdom of God and seek out a church that preaches and teaches in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.